and go. Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 94. Before I jump into it, once again, as always, remind you guys, please like, comment, share, subscribe if you enjoy the content. If you want to help us keep doing this, donate. We will be happy to take your money. Um, this is our last episode of the year, which is great. I was hoping we would hit 100 before the year was out, but it's whatever. We were very close. So, you know, Happy New Year to all of our viewers, and we appreciate all of your support. It means a lot to us. With all of that said, today we are joined by Ryan James Girdusky. Did I say your last name right? You did, yeah. Okay, I was like, I hope I don't mess that up. Um, Ryan is a New York City native. He's worked in politics for many years. Um, he started out with New York City Councilwoman Helen Sears. He's worked on dozens of political campaigns, and he's a writer, so he's written for various sources like Fox. And he's the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National populist revolution ryan thanks for joining us we appreciate thanks for your having me yeah well cam cam and i are good friends and i know you're friends with him as well he yeah. was on our live stream yesterday and he was also on one of our episodes like over a year ago so we've become good friends and he recommended you to me he said you know you guys got to talk to ryan he's really interesting he's a lot of great political takes and i want to see you guys have a conversation so i was like yes totally yeah, down for that said he's like listen to a few episodes first there was like the drag queen and then there was a prostitute and then there was, <laughs> i was i mean the episodes are very wide so this is not what you're getting on the Megan Kelly podcast. So. <laughs> it's not, no. Yeah, no. yeah, I mean, we try to live up to the name Dangerous Rhetoric, and that was mostly because we kept being accused of that for, you know, opposing identity politics and uh, the mandates and the lockdowns and that sort of stuff. People kept calling me that, like, hey, that's Dangerous Rhetoric. You can't say that. So when we started the show, I was like, that's going to be our name now. And to live up to that, we tried to definitely have a diverse um, array of different people come on and talk about a wide range of subjects and how they tie into culture and the culture war and politics. So, you know, we've talked to detransitioners, we've talked to trans people, we've talked to, you know, people in politics, scientists, artists, musicians. Yeah, and as soon as you tell me that I can't say something, I yeah. start to really want to say it. Yeah. So, <laughs> or there, if there's a topic like, hey, you can't talk about that in this way, it's like, really well, want to talk about it. Yeah, definitely going to talk about it. But, you know, let's jump right into it. I think the first thing I kind of want it to go right into is this idea of populism in your book and what exactly inspired you to write this. And I guess my first question to you is, you know, in your title, and I haven't read this yet, I'm going to get a copy and definitely delve yeah, into sorry, it. I don't read the book. <laughs> so, you know, you said how the elites created the national populist revolution, and you kind of describe it as nationalist populism. And is there a difference between, say, normal populism, or is there one definition for what populism is, and say, a nationalist form of populism? Well, there's multiple types of populism, but the one that I'm specifically looking at is right-wing populism. In the okay. I mean, there is left-wing populism. Bernie Sanders is a different form of populism. And populism is really an economic struggle between the elite and the, and the working class. Um, so the, the form of left-wing populism you see very oftentimes spring out of concerns over um, creating an egalitarian society based on the abolishment of meritocracy, meritocracy norms. Um, the um, the one that a lot of right wingers have sat there and posed, uh, you know, their head on is the interesting struggle, the interesting change in the working class life as far as um, as far as the economy goes. But a lot of it is infused with things like 
securing our borders, immigration, demographic changes. And so that's the one that I am more interested in to write about, and that's what the book was about. And it wasn't just about like politics in the United States. You also talk it's about Bre global. Brexit. Well, basically, and... the people who hated Trump the most. I worked for the Washington Examiner. Uh, their, their underprinting red alert politics when I was in uh, when I was in 2015, 2016. And to me, it was obvious that Trump would be the nominee. And I worked with Bill alongside Bill Crystal. He worked for the Weekly Standard, which was our sister site. And he could not fathom it. And the people that I met that really could not fathom that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee were the biggest proponents of everything that made him the nominee. And, hmm. and it's the Hillary Clintons of the world, it's the Barack Obamas, the George Bushes. And so uh, basically I wrote an article for the American Conservative magazine, which was about how populism, national populism, right-wing populism really came about in a, new, in, a, in a revived way in the late 90s to the mid-2010s. And I just, I looked at all these major countries that had had these restorations of populist figures from Hungary in 1997 to uh, Switzerland and Austria in 98, 99, and then you have Denmark in 2001, and then you have France in 2002, and the Netherlands in 2002. And, you know, here's the thing, and here's the, the, the movement. It's not just in Europe, it's also in India, and it's in Japan, and it's in Brazil, and it's in Colombia. And, um, it's over all the same issues. It's basically the same story, you know, photoshopped and copied in different country after country. And then it happened here. And, and right before it happens in any place, they say, well, this is the firewall. It cannot happen in Spain. It can't happen in Portugal. Now it cannot happen in Canada or Ireland. But it always seems to. Um, so I write about the conditions that create the, the explosion of populism in every place. And what do you think those conditions are exactly? Um, I think, I mean, there's a multiple things. So first of all is the idea of the working class not being able to move past their economic station in life. When that becomes, when there's permanent or feels like permanent stagnation, uh, when uh, national currencies are watered down in their worth and uh, working class feel like they are not able to exceed, it's not, uh, it's certainly the creation of a populist movement when you, whether it comes to uh, either a Bernie style one or a Trump style one, the, the depletion of manufacturing, the depletion of the working class model to make a decent life for yourself. And then um, on top of it is the erosion of national borders, mass immigration is a huge one. Um, and there are two types of major forces, one being outside forces and one being internal forces. Internal forces being uh, the depletion of the economy or the depletion of the working class economy. And then the other one would be something like, uh, you know, when Barack Obama says, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea. Let's overthrow Gaddafi and make Libya a democracy. And then it turns into a slave state yeah. and two million people flee across Europe. That's an external um uh, change that creates a populist wave, which is what happened. That's why um, the brothers of Italy and uh, Lega became the major governing parties of, of Italy over over the course of just a few years after being charged by a socialist government forever. Yeah, the the Libya situation was such a disaster. What a yeah, disaster that was. Disaster. That was yeah. one of Hillary Clinton's big pushes too. Yeah, famously, there's that clip where she like laughed about it, where she's like, "We came, we saw he died," and she's all like giddy. Yeah, and yeah, that, that along with um, Madeleine Albright, uh, Clinton's former chief of staff, who said um, that 
the, it was a half a million Iraqi children starved to death in the in the because of the um, the Clinton led food sanctions in Iraq, and she said it was totally worth it. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, and that was what Osama bin Laden used in his declaration of war against the United States. Yeah. You're probably too young to know this stuff, but yeah, it happened. Uh, I mean, I'm 32. Brent is 40, 40. so we definitely you remember. Guys, oh, okay, you're okay. You're my age. You guys look a lot younger over oh, Thank you. <laughs> if you got closer, you'd see all the gray on my face. <laughs> that's the that's Deadpool on my T-shirt and the kitty cat on my head. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that really throws it off. <laughs> that that myself. You can't see the lines on this camera, but no, they're, they're no, there. No, <laughs> It's nice that you wipe Vaseline on your camera before you start the show. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, no, we we very much, you know, came of age during the Bush, oh, okay, so yeah, the Bush era. Yeah, I got, I was in, actually, I was at uh, American University in 2002 to 2005 and was a frequent protester down in front of the White House uh, yeah. during the George W. Bush reign. And yeah, I grew up, you know, I grew up in... Uh, presidency of all time. <laughs> I grew up in... I was in, you know, Elizabeth, New Jersey is where I'm from, and that's like 14 miles from Manhattan across the water. And, you know, 9-11 and all of that stuff, I was 11 when that happened. I remember all of that quite vividly and how things very, you know, much shifted in the country. And although I was very young at the time and I didn't quite understand what was happening and just how impactful that was on the landscape of everything. But, you know, as I came of age, you, you come to realize all yeah, these well, I mean, everything changes. changes. Yeah, everything changed. It and it kind really of really like, it's hard to tell people. I, I, I employ people who are like in their early twenties and like, it's hard for them to understand. Like you yeah. don't understand like how things changed literally overnight and how people had, you know, I, I'm from Queens my entire life. My mother worked in the World Trade Center in Tower 1 on 97th floor. She survived, but mo almost everyone in her office died. Wow. And it's hard to really understand how, um, like, it's hard to be able, like, I remember working in my first restaurant when I was, like, 16 years old. This was two years post on the Iraq wars just starting. And, like, the waitresses were, like, this is in Queens, and this is not the most Republican part of the country. And they were, like, George Bush has is doing the right thing. We have to just support George. George Bush could do literally no wrong in those years. And I was, like, and I remember being young. I was, like, 16. I was, like, this is wrong. Like, you guys are yeah. wrong. This is absolutely stupid. Um, but there was no convincing. Yeah, there was just this heightened state of fear, and you know, it, you know the yes. charts like is it a red day or a yellow day or yes. a day? Oh yeah, I remember it, that. We yeah. literally would wake up and see the color. I, like it now, like you know, always in retrospect of a crisis, do you realize how ridiculous people are? It yeah. is now, like, I am more mad about COVID now than I was when COVID was happening. I was going to bring that up because they did very, you know, something very similar with the COVID numbers and all of that stuff. Quite similar. The that fact I had propaganda. to wear a mask to walk to a table and then take it off. Yeah. Now, in fear, the fact that I ate outside literally makes me, like, irate at this point. And that's yeah, happened to me, which is, I'm not a student. I didn't, like, miss a year of my life in school right. or, like, other people did. Nothing that bad happened to me but like that makes me irate i ate outside in the winter for no fucking reason yeah that. yeah see so, outside inside i ate i ate in a box i ate in a box, <laughs> yeah, in a box. with four walls yeah that was any like it but it had no indoor heat 
So I was freezing in a box outside when there was a heated room next to me inside. Inside, yeah. They brought the the inside outside. Also, nobody likes to talk about how rats and mice had easy access to crumbs and were shitting and pissing all over the floors of those boxes that they built. My sister sister graduated during 2021, and she she graduated high school, and we had our ceremony outside in the rain, in the cold. And like we're all freezing, standing yeah. in the rain, and I'm like, "What are we doing?" And then my dad was like, "They should put up a tent." I said, "We should be in that building next to us. <laughs> yes. the building. Tuition to keep open. Yeah. This is what we should be doing right now." And, and like now, it actually, I have to like black it out because it gets me so irate. We yeah. also we have to be careful what we say on YouTube still to yeah. this day because there are things that you are not allowed to say on YouTube. Yeah, like what? I'm just joking. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is crazy. You know the way just all these like seniors too were just left to die alone and yeah. horrible, horrible, well, evil. I, frankly, evil there should be there should be charges against Cuomo and Wolf and uh, what was the other one? Cuomo, Wolf, and uh, the New the, Jersey governor. The New Jersey governor, yeah. Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. Because they all did the same thing that uh, they, they put the positive patients into nursing facilities when there were open hospital beds because they they anticipated this influx of patients that was just going to swarm the hospital system remember we heard constantly about the hospitals it's going to be overloaded it's also going to like never happen not letting people have funerals well, for you their loved your, ones you know like george george floyd got a funeral and there all these other people couldn't even well, mourn yeah, their loved ones, you know when we weren't allowed to go outside yeah there was That's um the, you know my I, I have a lot of relatives who work in the hospital system in new york city and new york city's hospitals are always between 90 and 97 percent full on any yeah, that's normal so it's right. normal so yes would a surge overwhelm the hospital system yeah but a surge of the flu would overwhelm the hospital system because it's always 90 percent full there's not that many hospitals in a city of nine million people yeah. and guess what we get two surges twice a year like clockwork yeah. because well, that's how viruses well, but, work oh, yeah but oh, and also <laughs> a lot of our hospitals are trauma hospitals most right. COVID deaths yes. were like like um the hospital in Queens that was uh, like ground zero for all like the body bags. Uh, I forget the name of the hospital. It's a trauma hospital. If you get stabbed, it's a great hospital to go to. If you need surgery, you should not go to that hospital. <laughs> and you know, that's the kind of hospital it is. So they were, we were overwhelmed. And the lesson that we should have learned from COVID if we had half of a brain as a country, which I'm giving up hope for, was, hey, America is too fucking fat of a nation. Yep. And we are too fat of people. And that was, aside from being old, that was the largest core mobility. Yes. Was being fat. Yes. And, like, there was an literally, like, I mean, I God forgive me for saying what I'm about to say, but my friends and I, we would, like, be announced, like, young person, 29-year-old dies of COVID, and you'd be like... What do you think? Three hundred pounds or four hundred yeah. pounds? And they were always, always extraordinarily overweight. And you're like, it's not like it's not that hard to guess. And the reason that red states were hurt and black communities at first were hurt larger than white ones were, they are the heaviest. Yeah, it's not like it's not rocket science. Yeah, and e- even but even despite all of that, the overwhelming of the hospitals didn't really last that long. And one one of the biggest signs to me very early on that what was happening was absurd and that you know they kept dragging it on after this was you know we had the javit center opened with all these beds over here in manhattan and they brought a cruise ship in with hundreds of more beds you know hospital ship like in the hudson and and i think it was around late april 
They closed the Javits Center and that ship left. And after that, it should have been like, all right, lockdown's done, open everything up. No, they dragged it on and dragged it on yeah. and dragged it on. Well, I always say, I say, like, listen, at the very beginning, I, I heard about COVID in probably early December 2019. I was on Steve Bannon's show, and Steve was the first one to say to me, Ryan, there's this virus in China. It's going to make us way to America. It really is dangerous. You need to pay attention to it, and you need to get the, the masks, like the, uh, you know, the whatever the, the, the important mask this is in 2019 this is the only thing is that when you should really stock up on supplies because it's going to be a run on all the stores and he was right he was 100 percent right and when COVID, i told my whole family about it they all thought i was nuts like they always do and when COVID hit though i was very much prepared for what i for what i thought was gonna happen and i give every political leader in this country grace for the first 90 days right it's your job to protect the people you don't know what the information is it coming remember going back to italy in italy people were dropping dead left and right in iran they were dropping dead left and right china was not releasing information about the virus you didn't know what it was i give people grace and say you know what you freaked out for the first 90 days you needed to figure something out but once we really knew things when yeah. japan produced the study of how hard it was to contract covid that was in probably june, may late may early june of 2020 we really could have taken a step back and said, we don't need to do this the way we're doing. Yeah, yeah we, we, we were also ahead of it a bit at that time. We knew about the virus probably around that same time in December. <clears throat> I got everybody masked. Yeah, Brent got people masked for Christmas. The and actual stuff like, like that. kinds that have the valve outward yeah. that actually filters incoming air. And also, yeah. you know, as early as February, Brent, you know, had a solo channel that got nuked off YouTube. It's gone now. But he had a solo channel. And in February, he made a video about the virus. And he was already talking about, like, guys, this looks like it was made in a lab. And this was before anyone was even saying that. And lo and behold, you're probably correct about that. So we were on that. Well, there were, I mean, I was, there, was, there was a bunch of people saying yeah. the same thing at the same time. A lot of them got nuked off of YouTube for daring to say it. Yeah. I did sort of a tongue-in-cheek style, you know, uh, comparison to Resident Evil because there were a lot of similarities between the story that was coming out of China and then the Resident Evil thing. Umbrella Corporation. Well, this made no sense. Like someone ate a bat. Yeah, yeah. no. And, like, no. Was this the no sense. And then it, then it was a pang then it was a pangolin. If that <laughs> was true, Ozzy Osbourne would have had COVID forty five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. So it just doesn't make any sense. And, so. Like, is this the first person I've read a bat before? I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, so we, we got into this talking about 9-11. And, you know, one of the things that I came to realize kind of early on, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I feel like the like the whole post-9-11 era almost set the stage for that COVID fiasco to be able to play out in the way that it played out to have this kind of heightened hysterical sort of society that's you know beholden to the government to protect them when a crisis goes down and and, and all of that and i don't know what do you think um i don't know but the, i think that what happens is like i and i don't know if it's an american thing if it's a western thing or just a people thing but we in America right now, especially over the last 30 years, have really chosen to always take the easy route out. So when we were having a real big problem, so after 9-11, right, the 9-11 Commission comes out with their study, which has like, you know, dozens and dozens of recommendations, most of which are either not done or done half-ass, yeah. one of which was to build a border wall. 
honestly, if you know one remembers that, it's a unit barrier on the border. One of them was to sit there and to do an entry exit system to know who's in the country illegally. One was to go after illegal aliens for misusing drivers, like all this rest of stuff. None of it happens. George Bush says, go to the mall and let's fight in a war in Iraq. He takes the most expedient route to make people feel safe rather than to make them safe. Yeah. Um, you have, uh, you have after the uh, economic downturn of 2008, labor force participation rates have never returned to what they were. Um, and their answer is just stay out the banks. That's the solution. That's going to be the, that's the problem for the economy. And in COVID, you have a deeply fat nation of very obese people with a, with a sickening food uh, uh, problem, what, what we eat, what we put in our bodies and how little we move. And um, the solution is everyone wear a mask. Uh, you know, at what point is, is are you going to, I know it's uncomfortable to take, take the hard way and <clears throat> to sacrifice your time and energy to, to do things to make society better. But at what point is there no more band-aids left in the box to cover a bullet wound? Yeah. Why and, more, and does the body just start bleeding out? They didn't want to address, you know, what people could actually do to heighten their immune systems and make it less likely that this virus would affect them. So yeah, my first, go out and exercise. My, and it seems obvious to anyone yeah. who has even a shred of American history that you know that the power you give to the government can always be used against you. And that yeah. is the post 9-11 intelligence state is, is, is used against Americans each and every single solitary day of our lives. Yeah. I mean, that's what Snowden showed, but yeah. we all kind of knew it before Snowden, but we definitely knew it after Snowden. And it's, and it's, it's endemic of our system right now. I mean, it's, it's a very, very sick thing. And the problem is half of the country really roots for it to be that way. Yeah. Well, They're probably more like 20 dumb. to 25% of the country. It definitely, it created a, you know, a sort of culture of fear, I would say. I, mean, I think so people hysterical. like to be moralistic, and I think people like to feel like they have an edge on somebody. So that COVID was a great social experiment in like being in kinder, being in like a kid in, in school when you got to be the teacher's pet by ratting on other kids. Yeah. And like it became like, it was like, it's like, well, got, people got off on the idea of Yes. somebody that they were not wearing a mask. Why are you wearing a mask? I can't tell you how many times I was walking my dog outside in like, you know, 70 degree weather and some Karen or some old person would snipe at me. Oh, you should really be wearing a mask. Oh, you should, where, where's your mask? Like, I, I didn't get too much of that, but I did get a lot of death stares. From One me. time a guy yelled at death me while stares. he was smoking a cigarette saying, wear a fucking mask. And I was like, sir. <laughs> There was one out. I was driving from home from Massachusetts, and I'm driving. We had to, I had to get off the highway because it was too backed up. So I'm driving through the side streets of some godforsaken town in Connecticut, and there was this overweight black lady drinking an energy drink and smoking a cigarette while wearing a mask. And I was like, <laughs> like this is why I have given up all hope. Anyone we are living in clown world. God. It's clown world. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. just. It, yeah. We've we've crossed the we've crossed the, the portal, yeah. and we are now in parody world where yeah. it's very hard to distinguish parody from reality. As you know, lives of TikTok regularly you know shows us all. No, it's true. I, I, I you know I have a I have a relative, and she is she has a doctorate, and she's considered the smartest person in my family because she has this retarded degree, and she got COVID 
everything she said was always wrong when she said it. And I remember when I said it was my whole family, I was like, in December 19, I was like, guys, there's this virus. We should wear a mask. She's like, you're ridiculous. You're a moron. We're not going to wear a mask. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, fine. COVID hits. And she goes, it's going to pass by in a couple of weeks. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, this is going on forever. Then as we got more information, she was masking up even more. And then she would tell me, oh, yeah, Cuomo was right for sending them inside the nursing home. So where else would they send them? I go, why are you wrong all the time? Why are you wrong <laughs> how, is it, how is it you manage to be wrong 100% of the time? It's almost a skill. It's not even just like that she's wrong. It's that she's also wrong like 180 degrees opposite yeah. direction of the truth. Like you could find the truth by just reversing what she was saying. Yeah. Literally in like real time, like you could know what like how the situation was changing by what she said being the opposite. Like, like, it literally like you could like a monkey could like pick it out more often the truth and what was going on. And and she's just a you know well informed white liberal quote-unquote, whatever, but an awful, as they call them, and she's just wrong 100% of the time, and it's, like, almost astounding. Too much uh, New York Times and NPR. That's I read of... the New York Times, like, and I listen to NPR, and I still, like, can sit there and siphon through the bullshit and be like, well, that's not... But see, you're, you're siphoning. That's that that active step there. You're you're parsing. A lot yeah. of people are just, like... She's going to see this now. It in and she's going to be like... Assuming it's 100%. I guarantee you she will never listen to anything that I ever do. Well, ever. she's going to see this and be like, Ryan, I saw what you said about me. Doubtful. She, no, she knows. <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a decent relationship, but it is very... We were on one of the one thanksgiving i mean i don't care this is a funny story so i don't care saying it. we were on a group text and i didn't know i thought i was just texting my brother i didn't know i was texting like more people in my family than just my brother and he sent a photo of a few of my cousins and myself and i said oh my god my cousin the one we're talking about got so fat in the last year and she was on the message and she was like really I was like, I can't take it back. I can't. I, can't, I didn't say it. So I, I was just like, well, it's only been a year. You could lose the weight. <laughs> so <laughs> that's our relationship. She forgave me, but like, I, mean, I, I you just have to eat shit and say, yep, I just, I said it. Yep. And then we were at Thanksgiving. And I got sat on like a wobbly chair. And my chair broke after I called her fat. So it all worked. Out. <laughs> Oh, beautiful. This is a good lead into something else I wanted to bring up. And, you know, I was watching uh, today, actually, I was watching the discussion you had with Michael Malice on his channel, which was a really good talk. And, you know, you were talking about Trump and some of the reasons that he won as a sort of populist candidate. And one of the things you brought up was, you know, this sort of like, don't give a shit kind of attitude that he had about everything he said and and did you know and people would give him flack for it and he'd just be like yeah well i said it and do you think that really is one of the main reasons that people just rush to the polls to vote for this guy because i personally do i think you know the more people were told like oh well he's awful you can't vote for that guy you know he, he says he says all these horrible things and i think a lot of people were just fed up so fed up with the establishment side of it you know they looked at people like hillary and they were just like i don't want more of that i think i would rather have this guy over here who even though he's a little abrasive and harsh he at least sounds like he really means what he says and he's unapologetic about it i think that i mean part of i mean part of it is the fact that he is donald trump so yeah. like i could say some of the things that he said and get away with them um most politicians can't, although I think that they thought that they can, and that's why they walked out the last four years like, like morons. But um, I think part of it, but it would not have been the same had he 
so for every time he said John McCain wasn't a war hero or whatever he was, you know, I prefer my like things that you're just like, oh my god, why the fuck would you even bring that up for? Every time, for every time he did that, he said things that were obvious truths that no one dared to say. So when he gets into the South Carolina Republican debate and he tells Jeb Bush, your brother was a disaster, the Iraq war was a disaster, in a room that now seems very obvious, but at the time in 2015 when he said that in South Carolina, a room full of veterans, it seemed like that was going to be the end of his entire political career. How could you say that? Something that was so obviously true yeah. that no, but no one had the guts to say. And when he sat there and he said, um, you know, we can't cut Social Security from the, from poor older people. That's all they have. When he said we can't sit there and do um, uh, what you call it, we have to have a health care system that takes care of people. When we said, when he said, uh, let gay people use whatever bathroom they want, or trans people use whatever bathroom, an adult use whatever bathroom they want to use in my building. Things that or, or or he said, I'm okay with gay marriage, which he was the first person. And he had Peter Thiel speak as an openly gay man at the Republican National Convention. It seemed something that, like, in 2015, you could not possibly do, and he did it. And for, so for every time that he did those things, people who were not particularly religious, m more center than center-right, especially in economics, um, sat there and said, you know— yeah, the the people in the in, in control of the government, they're 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 fucking you over six days from Sunday. Yes, you know we got raw deal after raw deal. They forgave him for the oh my god, I can't believe he said you know John McCain wasn't a hero, um, because he was saying obvious truths that they connected to, yeah. and I think that that's the important thing. The problem now is that a lot of Republican politicians, what they learned from Trump was, oh, I can act like an asshole on Twitter and still get elected. Not, oh, there are millions of people, white working class people in particular, who vote for me constantly, who feel screwed over, and I should speak to their interests more often. That was the lesson they should have learned, yeah. not the lesson that they did learn. Yeah, so I guess that's a, actually a good lead into another thing I wanted to bring up from that Michael Malice discussion you had. Uh, you mentioned having lunch with Marjorie Taylor Greene mm -hmm. a couple years ago. And Love Marjorie. Yeah, she's a very interesting, very interesting person. She, she loves, like, shoots from the hip. She says what she thinks. Oh, and she definitely, she definitely shoots from the hip. Love that's it. for sure. Pisses a lot of people off. But uh, you asked her a question during that lunch. Um, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, what do you think is the biggest problem in the country today? Yeah. And, you know, do you want to talk about her response and what yeah, she so said? I got, to, I got to meet Marjorie when she had been elected but not seated because she won her first election was a special, I think. And she had not been seated yet um, as a member of Congress, which she was going to be. And this is when the controversies were starting to build about her with the Jewish space lasers and all the rest of it. <laughs> and, um, and so I said to her, I wanted to get a feel of her, and I was interested in trying to help up her office and whatnot. And she had these people from Georgia who were there that of the dumbest white men in America, and I was like, oh, God, this poor one is screwed beyond belief. And um, I just said to her, I was, I like Marjorie. Marjorie knows me well. She knows I sh I'm a straight shooter. I don't screw around. I'm not sitting here to sit there and, and, you know, fluff anybody. And I was like, 
are you, um, I said, what's the biggest issue facing the country? And she said the fact that working class people are portrayed like losers in the media and they are made to feel like shit. Yeah. She said, it's always the plumber who's the fat guy with his ass crack hanging out and the guy working in the office who's got three college degrees, who's slender and thin and smart and beautiful. And she was in, oftentimes that's not the way the real world is, but they're made to feel like shit all the time. And I thought that, I was like, okay, this woman gets it on an instinctual level. On an instinctual level, she understands what, the problem is now is she great at always saying it out loud and is she always you know the most well-spoken person in the world no but she gets it and there's two ways i find most politicians understand what way the world is it's either learned people like my marco rubio after the 2016 election is has learned about certain issues facing the working class and to his credit he's done a lot of very good things since then like expanding the child tax credit and trying to sit there and get you know maternity leave for working class women through social security whatever he's he's learned it and then there's people who just get it and she just gets it on an instinctual level so i i credit her for that yeah no and i i think uh i think her response is kind of spot on too i think that it's true. I think the working class people do feel not, I don't want to say disenfranchised, but they feel not valued anymore. No, like, absolutely. You're yeah. right. Yeah, these are totally right. These are the people who like keep society running. Like, you know, you could have a fancy degree from a university and sit there and wax poetic about politics all day long. But at the end of the day, like you need someone to turn your electricity on. Sometimes you need someone to fix something in your house. And it's just like, yeah. And it's, it's, it speaks to the volume that we have. We're in our country right now. We have the worst labor force participation rate we've had since the great depression. I think it's at 61 or 62% or something like that. You have, um, and you have millions of people, specifically men, who have just dropped out of society. There are millions of men who do not work and do not go to school that are of working age and they're not disabled. And they're not getting married. They're not having children. Um, they have dropped out. They do not feel that they are invested in society, in a society that constantly tells them um, the future is diverse. You're, you have to be a girl boss. You have to be, you know. Future is female. Future is female. It's a multiracial future. White men need not apply. I'm not saying it's all white men who, who have been dropping out of society, but there there are a lot who have. And um, it's, it's incredibly disenfranchising. Yeah, it's very, they don't vote that often, and it is very problematic when you have millions of people who don't feel invested not only in their own future but in the nation national future and um and I, I don't know really where you take that or where you go from it but it's not even being discussed as a problem by most people some people have sat there and said some stuff and i'm always now interested now because i'm a consultant for my day job so i'm interested in finding candidates who do want to ask those questions who do want to at least explore those things because i think that's the, the most important conversation i have that's a pretty good lead-in. I wanted to ask you about the fracturing that we're seeing in the Republican Party. Well, before that, I was going to just ask another quick question. Like, do you think, like, the lockdowns um, contributed a lot to instilling that mentality into people once they just, put, you know, pushed everyone into their homes for this long period of time? How many people just simply gave up? on even going back into the workforce or maybe they found no more meaning in whatever it is they were doing yeah, beforehand. They, they felt disposable, that sort of thing. 
Well, I think that I think well, if you look at the labor force participation, right, the major thing that happens, the first thing is the crisis in 08. That was the first yeah. thing that saw a huge drop of people who never came back to the labor force. And I think the bigger thing what happened with COVID was the restructuring of the economy. Now, remember, for for most of our nation national history, especially our post-World War II national history, the biggest driver of employment is small business. When you have a choice by the largest states in the country to shut down every small business while Amazon can function and while Google can function and all these other major corporations can function, um, what's going to happen? They're going to yeah. close. And so the small business driver, I'm a small business owner. Uh, you know, I don't employ many people, but I employ quite a few, uh, you know, a decent amount. It is. Um, it's a it's a huge driver for those people to sit there and, and and get those jobs and i mean mine is all telecommunication basically but if you work at a deli or a restaurant or a small manufacturing company you know you produce cardboard boxes you produce chairs you produce whatever restaurant equipment and you just can't function um then yeah, then then where then where do you go? You cannot make up those losses. You're, if you're a barber, I remember my barber had increased prices, and he said to me when he reopened finally after COVID, he said because everyone had like the most whacked out haircuts from in New York, and like, couldn't get a haircut. My, I look like a you know I look like a freaking uh, Zulu, Italian Zulu. And, <laughs> I um, cut mine. I cut mine myself. I so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't cut it. My, I was like, I'll just grow it out, and my hair grows up. I mean, I literally look like uh, you know a sideshow Bob, and so. Uh, I am. Um, I, I, what you call it? I said, uh, he goes, you know, he goes, two more weeks and we would have just closed forever. He's like, we yeah, wow. open up again. And, and a lot of, a lot of places did. I'm, I'm still taken aback when I walk around all the neighborhoods in Manhattan and stuff. I would say, you know, one out of four maybe places oh, are and, still and York, close. All you know? my favorite For lease. Yeah. Just empty. All my favorite places yeah. that I always loved are just gone. And the biggest irony, which I, 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 I have a little bit of schadenfreude for the whole thing is that for 20 years, since Giuliani's New York, uh, real estate developers and landlords did everything they could to kick out small businesses so they can get a pharmacy, they can get a CVS, they can get a Starbucks, they can increase the rents and get one of these, you know, commercial franchises in their in their businesses. And now with all the between the crime and COVID lockdowns, all those stores are closing now too. And they would have killed to have a mom and pop business right. from 20 years ago still operating in their in their store. So I mean that's the big shot for it. But yeah, New York will never be back to where it was in any way. Uh, Not anytime soon. It's just yeah. Now I don't think I just don't think it's possible because people Mm -hmm. just move on. The first like two months of the lockdown, I'm not gonna lie, I kind of enjoyed because you're like I don't have to be anywhere. No one's gonna no one's gonna be anywhere. Everyone can leave me the hell alone. And then afterwards, you're like, when is this gonna end? Yeah, like this is normal. This is not normal, and that's how people turn to alcoholism. Yeah, Uh, you know, people into abuse, a lot of drug abuses. Um, so yeah, so I'm sure all of those things contributed back to your question as to why people fell apart. Um, and, but it was a massive restructuring of the economy in a fundamental way that I don't think people understand as of yet, where you literally had, most people have their, outside of getting literally, I mean, stimulus checks to pay their bills, um, most people lost a lot of money and the richest 500 people in the world and the country got 
profoundly wealthy. Yeah, it was basically like the hugest wealth transfer in in our modern probably, history. Probably, probably close to it. Yeah. yeah, very early on, Brent and I were like, uh, "Guys, I don't think you understand bad, bad, bad. what the repercussions of this are going to be, and they're going to reverberate through this country, especially through the cities, for years." For well, a I don't long think we've time. even seen the full, no. you know, expression of the no. consequences yet. We're we're still grappling with, you know. Yeah problems with kids and development we're still we're watching the economy sort of slowly you know implode you know what's going to happen over the next 18 months is going to be huge and especially along with the conflict in ukraine which is definitely messing with supply lines you know ukraine used to be a huge exporter of grain and bread basket stuff now that's not going to happen so it's going to drive the prices up you know across europe which is going to drive the prices up here because everything's so interconnected thanks yeah. to globalism it's like we we still don't know the what's going to happen as a result. Well, I think the biggest irony is that Trump sat there and when he ran in 16 said it is a problem we don't produce in this country. And in 2020, it was proven true. Everything's yep. been right. true. Yep. And he was not able to sit there and connect those dots and say, guys, I was right. Now yeah. you have to listen to what I'm saying. Uh, and it's a problem that we had some people coming in our country who were literally bringing in COVID. Um, uh, and God knows what diseases, um, but I think that there was, um, I think that there is a, a a change now. I mean, certainly semiconductors are being brought into this country a little bit more than they used to be. Um, but there's no, when I say like, you know, we really need a leaders, a series of leaders who have a kind of a larger meta opinion about the way the world is structured. We passed this trillion dollar infrastructure package. Let's say there's only $200 billion for real infrastructure, whatever the case is. Passed this massive infrastructure package. At no point did a leader or did several leaders sit there and say, even on the left or the right, say, hey, let's look at the way the country is. Let's look at all the cities and all the towns and all the states that have been decimated because of opening trade relations with China. Let's invest in our infrastructure program in those areas so some of the jobs that will come back where we're pushing to come back come back to those places otherwise they're all going to arizona texas california north carolina florida and the whole entire repatriation program that we're looking to do at this point there's actual real conversations going over those they're not going back to detroit or ohio or cleveland or uh you know the shenandoah valley or uh, not Shenandoah, but like western mesh uh western Virginia or Pennsylvania um, those jobs are still not going to be there when they when they push for them so that is the one thing that I think on a meta level you sit there and you hope for a leader that says how am I going to really profoundly make the lives of people better you know there's you know we have a tremendous debt and deficit problem but all spending is not bad spending and if you're going to invest in people uh, make sure it's to sit there and improve their lives on an overall basis. Yeah, Thomas Massey recently had a huge love. Thomas Massey, he's great. ran his first super pack. He's oh, cool. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Um, and one of the things that he recently dropped on Twitter was this huge like uh, blast for Republican traders, Democrats, and the president over the the trillions of dollars uh, in the omnibus, and specifically the hundred billion plus that we've spent in Ukraine. And he, you know, sort of elaborated that. You know, from every like district, every congressional district in the country, that would be about two hundred million dollars. And he was like, "Imagine what your district could do with a two hundred million dollar investment." Think of it like this: There's a hundred thousand Russians who have been killed and wounded.
wounded and we spent a hundred billion dollars that's one million dollars per russian wow i mean that's obviously doesn't equal out to the same amount in the united states but let's say we could have spent three hundred thousand per american on investment in something i don't know job training or health care or losing weight programs whatever <laughs> yes. the case may be saving your business you know yeah you get the biggest irony and i tweet this is that this is not money we are giving to ukraine this is money we are either printing or borrowing from china right to give to ukraine to fight russia who is allied with china right like it's endless series of like the dopiest things in the world and i talked to my one of my friends uh works from mitch mcconnell and he said to me, you know, the Republicans in the Senate, they've gotten a lot of things. They've learned a lot from Trump, but they still can't get past the foreign policy stuff. They're still war hawks. And I was at, <laughs> oh God, we are so screwed as a country. I was at a meeting and uh, it's all these Republican business types. And I don't even know how I get invited to some things. Well, Ann Coulter, my answer plus one, otherwise I wouldn't have gotten invited. And <laughs> she, um, and I'm just yelling at people and I'm completely like, uh, someone said in a room full of people who disagree, you really shine. But I'm yelling at people and um, this and I said, you know, we really have to worry about the people who've been saying, I think part of the reason they lost in 2022 was saying we wanna cut social security. I go, people are, really struggling especially those on a fixed income and that's all they have is that social security check you can't yeah. take it from them and that's what they perceive it as whether you don't whether you're going to say it's like that or not that's what they perceive it as and this guy was like we are the party that won elections on ending social security i'm like what elections did you win like <laughs> since when in the world did you win these elections <laughs> are you like are you delusional all right, so, yeah. I guess this is yeah. a good lead into what you were going to ask. Well, yeah, it was like, it seems the like party. there is a fracturing in the Republican Party. There's the new guard, the populist uh, wing, the, the MAGA Republicans, though I hesitate to call them that. Um, uh, and they are definitely the party that's sort of taking up the cause of the working class and sort of, you know, being like the, the fiscal, you know, true fiscal conservatives in the sense of wanting to end wars and, you know, giving endless billions to Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you think that we're going to see that? What do you think is going to happen here? Like, can you see that that faction growing to really take over the party? Or do you think we're going to see like an ongoing struggle over yeah. the next two years? Well, the big problem is, is that they lost so many of the races in 2022. And because <laughs> Trump is the identified personality, he's done such a terrible job at endorsing candidates in 2022. He's got, I mean, it's going to be a perceived backlash. It's like, oh, this person is too populist. They can't win. I mean, we didn't, we did, we only won a few seats last election. And it, like JD Vance, who I worked for his super PAC as well, uh, was one of the very few that actually did, that won. Um, so I think that there's a big backlash against populists. But the thing is, is that it's not that we have to get these perfect candidates who agree with us 100% of the time to win every election. It's that the over, because you're not going to win everybody, you have to convert a lot of people to your causes. And it's that people have to, over, the overall perception, the number of Republicans, for example, that disapprove of Ukraine is far higher than the numbers who ever disapproved of like the ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. The number of people who support amnesty is far lower than it was 10 years ago. Uh, the people who talk about like trade deficits and building supply chains or whatever, that has increased substantially. So it's going in the right direction overall. I think leadership is really not there. And you have to 
really find these people who have kind of the foresight and the vision to get things right. I think the reason Republicans have been clamoring towards Ron DeSantis is not that he is the man with all the perfect plans. He's the man with the only plans. Yeah. So you're He's like, had, oh, wow. Had a lot of wins. You had a lot of wins, but you're, you are somebody who seems efficient at doing things like building bridges um, and keeping schools open, and you're not backing down, and you seem to have some vision for the way Florida is supposed to be as a state. And I'm not saying everything in Florida is perfect. I'm not saying that you know he, he, there's not room to improve. I'm not saying that he's my you know, person who should support in 2024, but a little foresight, a little idea, aside from tax cuts, is goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice to see a a larger scale sort of, you know, uh, conservative vision for the country, you know, 20 years in the future laid out by the RNC. But the RNC seems like a bunch of old impotent geezers that are too busy counting their money in order to actually be, you know, considerate of the rest of the country. You know, it's just, it doesn't, you know, the RNC's main job is to raise money. So I don't, I don't fault them. But you, you sit there and you say, like, you know, like, if I was the governor of Texas, so everyone in Texas is celebrating the fact that so many people are moving to Texas. I'm, I'm not moving to Texas, but like one thing I hear from Texans is, well, I can't afford to live here anymore. Or the endless, endless urban sprawl that they have, which has made like a giant, like, you know, 100 mile long suburb of, you know, Dallas and Houston. Those are not, is that the way, is that the only idea that your economy is going to grow? Is your economy going to grow because you have, you know, so many places are offering fast food and because everyone can live in a suburb. Um, and what are you doing to make sure that native Texans aren't being pushed out? Same thing Florida, Florida's got to ask is they sit there and say, how do I make sure our native kids, same that Mayor Giuliani and New Yorkers should have asked 20 years ago, how do you make sure that native New Yorkers can afford to live in this place if they want to stay here and they can't. Yeah, um, a lot of people left the city and it started in 2020 and then there was a, a huge surge in 2021. And what's interesting too is like the last time we did the census, like that's not even going to be accurate anymore. No, not at all. No, the new yeah. census numbers came out. We've already seen like 250,000 people leave New York. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, there are moments that you sit there and you say to yourself, it is unbearable. Like, I want, why do I don't have to live like this? Um, and then I go to other parts of the world and say, I'd rather live like this. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I've been to the Midwest. Um, but you, uh, you sit there and you say, I don't want to, I don't have to live like this. And, um, you know, if, if you had a, but if you really had a, like, a sensible, smart, mayor of like philadelphia for example and a sensibly smart governor oh my god philadelphia is a beautiful city it has a lot of the same architecture it has a lot of similar <laughs> art scenes if they weren't didn't have crime like they do now and they like had open schools and stuff like that oh my god new yorkers would be moving there like yeah. gangbusters you know what i mean like a city yeah. like that or a city like you know chicago but all these major cities are unlivable in, you know, in large senses of the word, or they're not preferable from one unlivable place to the other. So, I mean, the opportunity is so they is so much there, especially for younger people who don't want to live. I don't want to live in a suburb. I'd rather hang myself. But like, you know, some people do. And uh, but if you don't want to live in a suburb, if you want to live in a place where things are happening, you want to live in a city, then you know you don't have many options. And New York is lucky that we had two decades of of mayors who at least got crime correctly. So it was safe to live here, though it was expensive. Now it's not safe, expensive, and police can't do their job. And the business <laughs> proposed. Yeah. 
Yep, and there's not that much to do anymore either. Yeah, I mean, there's still some stuff to do, but for a while you couldn't do any of those things unless you know you objected. It's always me. Well, you live here, like I live here, so it's funny because I have friends who visit from out of town. They're like, "What? What's there to do in New York?" I'm like, "How the hell am I supposed to know?" I stay yeah. in my apartment and I watch Hulu like everyone else. Does. I have no idea. And it's like working or watching things to do in New York, like an asshole. And I'm like, "Oh, I didn't know we did that. I didn't know I could do that." I'm like, "I should go out every once in a while." But like, you know, I have museums that I ignore, like everyone else does. No, I, I don't. I definitely make a point to hit up the museums and, and, and the bookshops. And COVID to a museum. There was a really cool. Was that Barbara Kruger? He did the Orwell thing in MoMA. Yeah, but you know, I love the Met. I think the Metropolitan Museum is one of the, the greatest Orwell, places. And I went to the Grant Wood, and those are my last two. I don't know what years they were at this point, but like. I just won't. I won't wear a mask. Like I just. I no, no. no. Well, you, you don't have to anymore over there. No. But, but for for a while, yes. Like people like us, not just over the mask thing, but for refusing a particular medical intervention, <laughs> we're literally gender surgery. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> we're literally segregated from these places, and to to be segregated from museums is particularly damning to me because it's like this is literally our collective cultural heritage. And you're yeah. saying, I'm not allowed to go in there because I haven't uh, had a particular experimental medical intervention. Or on all the subways and buses. Yes, I mean, or restaurants even. Like, we couldn't, couldn't go to restaurants. So it's just like, I don't – that was one of the reasons, too, yeah, that – People who are still obsessed with masks are the yeah. most bizarre human beings. I was at a – Total weirdos. I mean, I get – my grandma's at a nursing home. I get why they still wear masks in nursing homes. I do. I don't – whatever. But, like, it's a nursing home. So it's just I don't. Place. But what would you say? I don't. I don't get it. Yeah. Like it's, it's just a placebo. It doesn't actually do doesn't what they do. Whatever. I, I get why they want to do. They want to have less, even for like the flu or whatever. These are people in their eighties and nineties or whatever, and they, they might have a trouble covering their mouth. Yeah. Right. Whatever. Okay. You're walking from one room to. I get it. All right. So fine. But I get that for a nursing home, why you would want to wear a mask. But um, I went to the skin doctor the other day to get my like the cancer exam thing, and he's literally on my body as close as you could possibly get and he's like make me wear a mask i'm like you know this is not doing shit right like, do i have to do and i have a big nose on top of it i'd like uh, asians it must be as easy with like a, a smaller nose to wear a mask it's not easy for me I yeah i got really that roman pointy thing going yeah, on yeah i mean it's it's is not meant for somebody who looks like an obese jew and like my, myself and so this is you are not like, obese stop well i mean trust me <laughs> I got the right camera angle. Right? I got the right camera. <laughs> angle. I look like John Ossoff. He had diabetes. So you know, we were we were talking about the migrations of people leaving places like New York and going to you know Texas and Florida and stuff like that, and how much the economic situation has, has to do with that and the crime. But what really led to the economic situation is the lockdowns, right? And and the mandates it's it's this masking right. thing we're talking about it's also contributed to the crime it's you know you're gonna and take this in, yeah and the, the school closure so like you're gonna take this injection or we're going to push you out of society and granted they lifted all of that stuff but by the time they lifted that stuff it was too late so many people were fed up with it that they did just leave and they're like screw it i'm gonna go somewhere that's open and free that isn't going to pester me over what i put on my face or what i put into my body that i don't want in there well we can say to they, you know, you were a good person. It was like being in World War II and fighting the war after. Yes, <laughs> it was. It was. You were, you were, you were keeping your, I don't know, you were recycling your metal. Do your part to make. Yeah, you were doing your part. 
and it's like it's insane as if it was going to go away forever yeah and I, like i mean i'm not a science person i only took earth science so i like was like oh yeah so we all stay inside i'll go away in two weeks and then like after a while i'm like oh wait science doesn't make any sense <laughs> like because then everything would go away like, get rid of everything now. it's also it's just hubris you know to think that we're going to get to zero COVID, that we're going to stop a respiratory virus from spreading or that a piece of cloth on your face is actually going to do that. Like, well, it's just like, idiots. I have to wonder. Does the conversation change? I get why you don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. I get why you sit there and say, hey, this is something we don't understand and it's brand new and we don't overwhelm the hospitals. That's understand i get that i under i'm gonna be this is me this i'm talking me in 2020 i'm gonna be an active participant to make sure our hospitals overwhelmed but then the conversation changed no longer to we're going over the hospitals to we're gonna stop the virus overall how like how are you going to stop the virus over where when does how does this happen and it's just it's this insane thing it's like you know people who signed up for the blm shit and they were like we don't want unarmed people being killed by the cops and then it was like we're gonna take property from white people when did this happen all right so i'm glad you brought that up because that's a great segue into the last topic that i wanted to talk about with you and it's one that i know you're passionate about and cam said you know it's something you you know a lot about you know how to define it and talk about this issue very um articulately and it's it's critical race theory yeah it's, this is a very controversial subject in the country right now we've discussed it on the show a few times before although it's it's been a while that we've talked about it so you you helped found the 1776 I did found it. I you found it, it. Yeah. the 1776 project pack and this was designed as i guess a counter to to the 1619 project yes. correct you thank know, you for understanding that because most people don't they don't and they a lot of people don't even know what the 1619 that's why i love it is. i thought it was such a perfect counter because you know 1619 70 70 the same yeah. so yeah. you know talk a bit about this you know maybe first describe like what is crt because we have to define it a lot of people have all these conflicting definitions like oh it's just teaching american history or it's not in schools it's something that's in law schools yet at the same time they're saying why do you want to get it out of schools like they can't even be clear on that and like what is the 1619 project how does that relate to crt and then describe why you decided to create this as a, as a counter to that yeah so so i start so i started the organization in 2020 because my my god one of the good things that happened out of covid was that people got to see what their kids were learning in schools yeah. and because everyone was going to school at home my godson who at the time was uh, like 10 uh, was one of them and he's in his class like, i think it was like third or fourth grade or whatever the case may be and um his teacher starts reading a book called race cars which is about a white privilege for middle schoolers and so he um and i live in a very working class area a lot of cops sorry my dog is so uh, a lot of cops um are in the neighborhood and so he um he he was uh he was asking questions of like why does why does um why did you know what do you mean cops are following black cars not white cars or whatever the case might be and so he um he was curious and uh, the teacher was um was going on on uh, like an anti-police rant and my aunt overheard it and she went ballistic 
absolutely ballistic, as did a lot of other parents. And they called the counselor, and they called the principal, and they, you know, and they called me. A few of them called me, including my relative, and they said, you know, what do we do? And I and I did not know how bad the problem was. And upon research, it was far worse than I thought it had been. The Loudoun County schools were blowing up at the time. And I said, you know, what can I do? I could make a pact about school board elections and try to do something because it's all I do. I've worked in politics since I was 19 years old. Only other job I ever had was Victoria's Secret. So I can do something with with elections. So I started this pact for school board elections and we have won. We've helped flip over 102 school board and and state superintendent races across the country. And um, it's to combat the rise of critical race theory. And critical race theory was founded in the 60s. Uh, there's a few founders. I think I cite on the website one of the, one of the works of one of the founders. But it is a specifically political ideology. It says explicitly, if you read uh, Del Richard Delgado, um, and his book is called An Introduction to Critical Race Theory by NYU Press, um, it is specifically a political doctrine to sit there and to um, make race the cornerstone in the center of our governing body and to reassess and realign our politics and our economy based on race. It is not to make sure black people feel more identified in history lessons. It's not to teach, you know, more alternative versions of history. It's specifically political. And the people who have used critical race theory to build upon their own platforms, like the Ibram Kendis of the world, for example, they are, it is specifically politically conscious. They, that's why Ibram Kendi wanted to create a fourth branch of the government called the uh, Department of Equity, where it would supersede the other three branches and, you know, make laws illegal if it didn't counter equity in it. Um, and really what it has done is it has done things like it's attack meritocracy, where, you know, it, like a school in Virginia did not give away, give academic awards because there wasn't enough diversity this year to substantiate the academic award. <laughs> ridiculous it's so insane um some schools punish people differently based on race they give out suspensions to make them equitable um some schools some schools do there's soft segregation in a lot of schools now where they have after school programs that are bipoc black indigenous people of color only so would you say that uh you know like affirmative action policies are like an early form of this yeah, I mean, affirmative action policies. If you re, if you go back to like the 1970s and 19, uh, when they were talking about affirmative action, the goal was this will only be used for the next 25 or 30 years maximum, because if we just give this little boost to black people over the course of the next like 30 years, everything will be equitable. And Lyndon Johnson, in, in his defense of affirmative action, said if there's a certain population of, I'm going to. I don't have the exact quote, but the essential thing was, well, there is a certain population of people that are suffering and they are doing and, and bad things are happening to them. Who is at who is at fault? It must be, therefore, the government that is doing that. Who, who is, yeah. I mean, and that in itself means that every kind of every kind of uh, of of, of uh, falling fault of, of a society, therefore, there's no personal responsibility or no in, in responsibility for that. Yeah. Have you ever read the the book The Diversity Delusion by Heather McDonald? No, but I'm a big fan of Heather McDonald. This was a very good book I read a couple years ago, and it, it definitely opened my eyes more to this subject and just how much these affirm 
affirmative action policies have affected the culture, the school system, and just how they've failed. You know, she very much addresses how and where they failed. We're not addressing the root problems. Like we're just funneling all these students into schools, you know, to meet certain quotas, to make universities look more diverse. So on the surface, it looks great, but you know, black and Latino students, it's not affecting how many of them drop out and actually like graduate. But it's also, I mean, listen, I didn't do well in school. I was not a good student ever at any point in my life. But I did not sit there and have contempt. I wasn't contemptuous of people that were good students. Yeah. I, I, I'm never going to be a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, but I'm happy I live in a world with a Steve Jobs and an Elon Musk. And I think that, the, uh, I, I say to myself all the time, you know, are we doing anything in our society that China would, would do? Would China ever sit there and say, you know, there's not enough, you know, uh, you know, Vietnamese going to the top 1% of schools. So let's destroy the way we do things to make sure yeah. it's more equal, not, uh, you know, racially diverse or ethnically diverse. It's <clears throat> totally insane. And that's why I mean, it's, it isn't. But the thing is, the scary part of the critical race theory conversation is it's moved from soft segregation in after school programs to genuine promotion of racism, of anti-Asian and anti-white racism by the government, by Joe Biden's government. Joe Biden specifically was giving out farm aid based on race. Right. He was saying the 2% of farmers who are black were going to get a higher percentage. Um, let's talk about COVID. Uh, the Republican governors of Vermont and Utah, and I'm sure there's several Democrat ones, they were saying you can get a COVID vaccine only if you are a minority first. They were specifically doing healthcare intervention based on your race. That yeah. is completely and totally insane that they are happening in this also, country. It's also unconstitutional, right? Yeah, it's also ironic because the majority of people in places like, say, New York City, who rejected getting the shot the rights act. were black and Latino people. And there's no black people in Vermont or Utah. Yeah. <laughs> there's three. There's three. <laughs> Go knock on their door. Say, Steve, yeah. do you want a vaccine? Like, that's it. Like. There's no, there are no matter, it, but it is the total sanctimonious, like ideological, these awfuls and, and the male versions of these awfuls. And, but it is that they, but they are, have a very strong foothold in government. And it seems like, uh, it seems like, oh, why wouldn't you be okay with doing X, Y, or Z, uh, you know, to, because these people have been discriminated against when, when you imagine a, a world that's not true. And that, so, yes, the 1619 project, the 1619 project was this re of, of history that to give more um, focus on the black experience when blacks came to this country in 1619. Um, okay, so part of their thing that they said was that the American Revolution was fought over slavery, not true. Um, that the, that slave trade was the modern way of building economies, not true. That capitalism was a uh, was only used to sit there and promote slave trade, not true. There was things that were completely false, and before you knew it, fourteen hundred schools were using the 1619 Project as a method to sit there and teach kids. Yeah. I have another good book recommendation um, oh called The 1619 Project of Critique by Philip W. Magnus. Okay. Yeah, very good book. It's basically a collection of essays about you know, where that came from and addressing those points that you brought up with historical data, like disproving them, like here's why this is wrong, here's why the American Revolution was not fought over slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, very good book. It's pretty short. It's an easy read, but I recommend okay. that people check it out. Yeah. Philip Magnus. Yeah. I think I know that name. 
yeah. But yeah, it's like their their whole argument is that like that was the original founding of the country and that the the it's whole basis and foundation of horse hockey, everything that makes America history. America is is racism, is oppression, and it's like yes, we know that those Marxism. things were there, but that's not the totality of the foundation and the value. But it's also America. not. The I mean, but to deny that they to to make the idea that conquest that uh, that the destruction of human capital, destruction of life, whatever, is unique to being Western, to being American, or to being white is idiotic. Yeah. It's not, it's in every culture. For yes. some reason, everyone, everywhere around the world said, oh, wouldn't it be great to figure out a form of government, figure out a religion, and then own another person? Like, those are three things that everyone did across the entire world independently of each other. And you know, had no communications of each other and, and just did on their own. And so it is a human nature thing. Human beings, if you live in New York, you know human beings are trash. Like they are. They're not nice people most of the time. So like they're garbage. Like that's and that's why people prefer dogs over people. Um, <laughs> that is but that is that's true. And we've been garbage to each other over a long period of time. So um so so yes, all those things existed, and they were not good. And we went over and above to make things better, and to change the way we are. We have anti-you know-discrimination laws, and we yeah. have uh, you know a, even when you did affirmative action for some for several decades, and whatever the case may be. But that does not mean, therefore, that the next mo because things are not changing. If things are not changing, there are deeper structural problems with maybe the communities we are addressing rather than the systems as a whole you no one said hey let's make a white supremacist culture but let's make sure asians can exceed whites or certain immigrant populations from you know africa and the caribbean there's clearly not a problem if if, if you know nigerians are doing so well or or Jamaican, indian americans or chinese americans there's not a problem with the system maybe there's a problem with you know foundational black americans who are the descendants of slaves maybe there's some issue with this population that needs to be addressed i don't know rampant fatherlessness rampant welfare dependency you know um but if you read like the writings of wb du bois and uh and and newly freed slaves of the 1860s 1870s they constantly say give us a chance don't give don't make me a victim yeah. And the mentality is completely different today. And so there is something that from the and if you look even at, at black poverty over the course of over the course of, of the or 20th century, it plummets until LBJ's Great Society. And then it stagnates. And that kind of thing happens over and over and over again. Yeah. So, well, Th Thomas Sowell called it, uh, was it the uh, oppression of low expectations. I think that was the phrase. Yeah. He used. You know, well, and we, we, we've spoken, I don't know if you know Adam Coleman, Adam B. Coleman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We've yeah. had him on the show twice. Great guy, really brilliant. And, you know, he wrote a book all about this stuff from, from Black Victim to Black Victor. Like, oh my God. stop. You one more book. I love books. Come on. I know, but you don't have to put them in the description. I do. Stop <laughs> coddling. You know, stop coddling minorities. Stop treating us like we're fragile little babies who can't 
do anything for us. You know, I was with, I was in Vermont one time with my friend Rob Smith, who's a Fox guy. Uh, he's black, a gay black guy. And we're in Vermont, and we're talking. We're in line to go to a restaurant. And Vermont is like the home. I love Vermont as a state, but it is the home of every white liberal retard in the world. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> they are. And we're online at this, at this restaurant. And we're just talking about Obama's policy in some way. And he just says the word Obama. And this white liberal woman turns around and goes, Obama, yeah. And gives him a high five, and he was like, <laughs> "I was like, what the hell just happened?" And he goes, "All the time." He's That's like, so embarrassing. He's like, literally all oh the time. He's like, "We are not people; we are their pets." That is <sighs> wow. That's so that is embarrassing. It was yeah. the first time I ever saw that since like college, where I saw a white liberal being like embarrassingly crazy. It reminds me of that scene in Get, in Out, Get Out where yeah. the guy's like, oh, we have voted for Obama yeah. twice. Yeah, the girlfriend's father. <laughs> yep, yeah, reminded me of that too. So another thing I want to talk about with the 1619 Project is like, you know, we're talking about how one of the arguments they're making is that it's at the very foundation of America, racism, all this stuff. What they're also arguing is that the very foundation of capitalism is right. racist and that that's a huge thing because it ties into these other movements politically that we're seeing like antifa which is all based on white guilt well, i think and blm and all this stuff it's like they're literally trying to overthrow the the economic system itself well, not just you, the country when you, when you boil history, down the like, critical race theory the gender borg craziness you know all of this stuff that we all have a problem with as relatively sane americans it's neo-communism it's neo-marxism yeah. it's just you know, it, now it's got a new rapper. They're going after the, the gender sexuality angle and the race angle because that's what will work in an American context or it's what has been working in an American context. Well, it's, it, Brent's right. And, and you know, it, like because the workers of the world mentality thing lost. But look at what, what happens on social media now where on the left it's very common for you to call out your parents for not being woke. Yeah. Wait, that's what, literally oh what they God. used to do in the Soviet Union. That you'd have to call out your parent and rat yep. out your parents and rat out your family members. Um, that is 100% what is happening in some parts of, of the left. And ultimately, when you descend into that kind of madness and chaos, it's only authoritarianism, left-wing authoritarianism that can save the day. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, and look, I mean, Look at what the when I you Brent mentioned that he was a anti-Bush person as I was in the 2000s and I was same you know, teenager, but look at what as a former leftist what I was against the idea that the FBI is working with a private company to make sure certain people can't speak is something that you would be horrified that George W. Bush was doing, and now it's like. What do you mean? Like, of course that was happening. Why, why make a big deal out of it? Like, it, it? like the smoking gun's not even worth talking about. It's a nothing burger, Ryan. What are you saying? The left has, like, lost every one of their cornerstone of like what they stood for 25 years ago they're not leftists yeah and they used to be the anti-big pharma side as well too like oh you know down with gmos and all this other stuff and all of a sudden all of a sudden it was you know take the shot or lose your job take the shot or you're segregated like it's yeah, like what no, the it is, hell like it is totally descended into like the 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 Democrats of like, and the and the and I wouldn't say progressive, but the leftists that I knew in the early two thousands were genuine leftists, right? And they were Liberals. against big corporations and against the big wars and all of those people. I do not know how they live with themselves today. Yeah. Like I don't, because they don't have any of the same values anymore whatsoever. Right. 
yeah, we've gone, you know, completely, it's like they aren't even leftists. I think of them almost as just a sort of like hybrid organism, like that's a super, you know, super organism that's made up of a bunch of different people that are just, you know, like a hive unto itself. And they use leftist trappings and classical, you know, leftist, you know, rhetoric, but they're not actually leftists and they don't do the things they claim to do. What they do do a lot is lie all the time and often as we said earlier you know 180 degrees in the opposite direction of the truth and that is you know that's why I, I, I think of them more as like liars and lie people than i do leftists or liberals because the, you know the, i'm on this whole train of trying to use language much more accurately and to edit out all of the propagandistic uh semantic games that have been hoist upon us as a people over the last 20 years so this is kind of what i'm seeing them as i don't really see them as leftists they they wear those trappings but they aren't that they just well, they're just the, power you monsters. just said with hive because it is a hive mind mentality and basically right. they are just an extension of the democratic party whatever they stand for at that moment um you i listened to your bunk podcast you said about you had the drag queen on and you said basically every kind of major drag show thing is, is Katie Demir. yeah it's just an extension of, of the rupaul drag race franchise yeah it, that is the same thing with the democratic party it's just an extension of what the popular talking point belief is now at the time and what the party is best interest of the party um, not what's best interest of the working class, certainly, and, and, and any other group. And you can tell by their true disdain for white poor people in this country, for white yeah. people, like, genuine disdain, genuine hatred for them. And some of them openly say, I can't wait till you're all dead. Yeah. So, you know, that's just, it's just well, where they, they have fallen to. This goes back to, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go back to the, the contrast between the 1776 project and, and the 1619 project. And I think a lot of that really does get to the core of what's happening in this country right now. And what's happening is there is a war, an intellectual information war for the, it's a battle over the narrative of the country itself and how we should look at ourselves and look at our history. And therefore how and we moved in the future. From their side, that lefty radical side, it's like, not only should you not love America, you're not even allowed to like America. Right. Even just a little bit. You're not allowed to like it. It's like we want to tear the whole system down and, and replace it with something else completely. And, you know, the conservatives, obviously, their whole point is like we want to conserve certain values. It doesn't have to be everything, you know, depending how extreme you are on the yeah. conservative side. But they were just works, you know? a mock, it would be Wakanda forever if it was just this female for like, you know. Woman. But what's crazy is Wakanda is, is actually a more conservative society. Like if you look at Black Panther, the, the, the lefty side was Killmonger, was the villain. And he's the lefty side. He's like, no, we got to like open these borders up and give all the weapons to the blacks across the world and have them get revenge against Black the whites. Black Panther was secretly based. Whereas Black Panther himself is actually, he was more like conservative, closed borders, you know, uh, you know, a more unified nationalist kind of society where focus we don't- Focus on our people. Yeah, not interventionalism, like right. stick to ourselves, focus on our own people. Like Wakanda- it, I didn't see it, but I believe you. But, the, but that's their, their genuine belief is, oh, we won't be Detroit. We won't be that city. And we won't be Jackson, Mississippi, which has no running water. We won't be Flint. We'll be Wakanda. If only yeah. we have our opportunity. But every yeah. time we seem to have their opportunity, you end up with Baltimore, not with <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you know this future city that's amazing. I just I find it so ironic because if it, it almost tells me they didn't really understand too much the message of that movie. Because, like I said, Wakanda is a very conservative society. But it's, but it's their idea of where their identity politics will ultimately yeah. lead to is is it's not the okay. ideas, it's just the people. So, you know, we get rid of these white people and we will be, it's, I mean, remember, this is also, I mean, this is not the first time this has happened. You saw the rise of Hugo, Ch when Hugo Chavez rose in Venezuela, what did he run? He wrote on, they don't like you, because I don't like me because I look like you. I have a right. big nose and curly hair. Um, when uh, in in Central Africa, I think it was, when they sat there and said, let's get all the, rid of all the white farmers so we can be prosperous, and then they starved to death afterwards. They starved mm -hmm. afterwards. I mean, there's this identity race-based policy which has worked, like this happened in, 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 you had it in uh, in Indonesia where there was anti-Chinese sentiment, in Germany with the Jews, you've had it yep. with, uh, you know, you've had it with uh, tons of people across the It's not unique and it's happening really in America. And where does that ultimate point lead to? It's not going to end at, um, let's do soft segregation with BIPOC only after school programs. It will not yep. end with, um, let's have Joe Biden give out farm subsidies to yep. minorities first, or you can only get medical vaccinations if you're a minority or a woman or whatever. It's going to end in a very, very dark place the current trajectory it's going on. And so it is important to sit there and to intercede and to get ahead of that and to stop that and to sit there and say, um, there is nothing wrong with American history. There are bad points, but that is human. There is, you know, I I actually say we should learn much more about, um, uh, you know, global history than we currently do because everything is kind of Western themed. Yeah. So you kind of think, oh, everything bad just happened in Europe, but when in fact everything bad was happening everywhere, <laughs> yes. kind of always. Yeah. Um, in fact, so, we're we're living at the time where like there's as little as bad that has ever happened ever. And right. we just don't really get to appreciate that because the media just sort of bombards us with like. Did you, you see know. White Lotus? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I, I saw season one. All right, well, season two, they make a reference like where the guy says to the girl, if you think everything's bad now, you should have been in Europe for like the last 500 years. <laughs> like something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Half, he's like, it's, um, it's amazing there's even people left on this continent. We spent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's uh i mean that's that, that's kind of a whirlwind do you have anything else you wanted to cover no i mean i guess i thought this was a little funny point to bring up along the same line the you know, fresh fresh release from stanford is that the word american is quote harmful well, language goes, goes back to what i was saying like you're not even allowed to like stop america. telling me how to talk <laughs> like, you're not I to like it and you know i guess that 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 is very much what you're trying to do with the 1776 project pact is like you're you're trying to restore american values well i'm having having like well you know the thing about this about all these there there are a handful of woke teachers and i like what lives of tiktok does but the problem oftentimes is not the teacher the problem yeah. in is the administrator and yes. it's the superintendents and the people coming out of the teaching pro colleges that are the ones who are demanding that they do these, you know, professional counseling. These people who are diversity officers and their job is to find racism everywhere. Are the yeah, we got to get rid of all that. All yeah. these DEI so, commissars, yeah, all right. these departments exactly. of inclusion and equity. Board. 
the school board's in charge of the budget, so we take over the school boards, we can affect the budget and abolish DEI policies. And some have done, some school boards have done that. And some school boards we've helped flip have passed parents' bills of rights and have said that, you know, you cannot do medical procedures or, 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 or suggest medical procedures to my child. You cannot sit there and talk to gender my child. You can't, yes. you know, you have to do, like at the end of the day, the parent does have the most control. It is their child. Yeah. Um, and it's always these childless people who are running amok saying, there and saying no we'll be better parents than you will crazy yeah absolutely crazy yeah we we'll have to wait and see you know how this gender thing falls so out we we already two elections we flipped this last year i'm hoping that we'll do another 100 next year in 2023 it's an important year so <clears throat> i think you will i think as this as these conversations continue to happen i mean there are people that have no clue what's been going on there are people like you, you mentioned Loudoun County there are people who have no idea that you know a boy who wore a kilt and you know maybe identified as trans sexually assaulted not one but two girls there in the girls and they lied rooms. about it and they, they tried to silence the parents yeah yes. but, look, it, it, but the thing is is that because COVID happened and everyone was at home everyone is kind of aware now that is why it became just you know I, I you know I have I have family and friends who are in fairly conservative areas and they're like how do i have four trans kids in my kids class <laughs> like how is this how all of a sudden is everyone trans why are there it's not no a social lesbians? contagion ryan why, why are there no lesbians left right like you know why is there's not a single lesbian left they're not they're, they're all boys in the end um uh so i think that all these things are happening i think people are more aware than ever and that's why we've been successful even in blue areas so hopefully we'll yeah. be successful going forward yeah i think the the gender ideology stuff is something that the conservatives really do need to keep hitting on because it's a winning it's issue. a winning issue you know a lot of you can unify a lot of people especially in the schools what i don't understand what i don't understand is part of being a lesbian or being gay means that you are attracted to someone of the same gender yeah. So if gender Same doesn't sex. exist, Same that thing. means all the progress you've made on being gay or a lesbian should not exist either. Yeah. It seems yeah. like if social conservatives did this in the 60s, there would be no gay marriage because they'd say no gender exists then. Right. Yeah. Right. It, just, it makes no sense to me if that's your identifiable thing. The problem is, is that, you know, a big problem is, is that the gay, the gay rights, you know, nonprofits won basically with gay marriage that was their issue yes. they won but there's still money to be had it's lots of money so you have to find a new thing and your new yeah. thing is you're gonna sit there and destroy a child's body yeah. in the name of in the name of all things that are good it's it's literally barbaric yeah it's it's evil i just it's what, used, it's what, yeah. it's what uh, uh camille Polly has said happens at the end of at civilization it yeah. certainly feels like we're heading in that direction. That's why we got to speak out. That's why we got to flip, there. you know, school boards and get, you know, much more rational people in there. And we certainly have to try something because if we keep heading in the direction that we're heading, like, yeah, we're going to find society is going to continue to disintegrate. And, you know, all this progress that we've made is going to be undone and we're going to go backward. And there's more backlash too happening against people who are gay, lesbian, bi and all this stuff. And it's, and it's hard to even blame these people because when you look at the stuff that's being attached to us and being pushed in schools and the amount of kids who are being harmed by this family stuff, friendly like, drag of shows course, yeah <sighs> you know they're gonna lump us all together and just Stop be like it. look the slippery slope we were right and it's like how do you even blame them at that point when right. it's gotten bad you know all right well um do you want to wrap up there yeah i guess no. we can end Ryan, it there your website is 
Uh, just go to the 1776 Project Pack, pack is spelled PAC.com, if you want to get involved, if you want to run for school board, or if you want to donate, or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, check it out. And you're Ryan Gerdusky on Twitter, so everyone yes. go follow Ryan on Twitter. Know, like, someone made a fake Instagram of me, so if you had a message, <laughs> I saw I cryptocurrency. I am not. <laughs> I don't know what crypto is. I don't live in Florida. I, I saw that. I went, I went and looked you up today to follow you on Instagram, and I saw that there were two, and I'm like, they look the same. Uh, and yes, then, please yeah. report the other one because uh, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I just want my Tesla stock to stop going down. If that could happen, <laughs> I am all about that. But. Oh, man. Ryan, Seems like they're doing a coordinated yeah. attack on Elon. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. We appreciate your time and, you know, the work that you're doing. We think it's awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Everyone else, thank you for watching. Uh, we wish you a happy new year. Thanks for supporting the show this year. And we already got a couple guests lined up for next month. Um, one of them is an FBI whistleblower, so stay tuned for that. That's going to be a really good episode. Um, please support the show. Like, comment, subscribe, share if you dare, um, and donate if you want to help us keep doing this. And Take care. Bye-bye.